0: everyone. This is Randy Wooten, CEO of Maxio and your host of SaaS Expert Voices, the podcast that brings the SaaS experts to you to help us understand where we are today and what's happening tomorrow. Today, I am super excited to welcome Robbie Baxter, who is one of the early thinkers about subscription uh, business models and monetization. We'll talk more about that. And we're going to cover a couple of things one her background and interest in subscription models then we'll focus on her two books the membership economy concept which is really her manifesto and then the forever transaction which is really the playbook and we'll spend the rest of the podcast digging into some of her lessons learned and best practices for the folks that are in subscription business models today so thank you robbie for joining us
1: oh it's great to be here thanks for having me randy so,
0: you've got a great background. Started off in strategy consulting and then moved into product management, both product management and product marketing for a couple of years for financial services companies in particular and some HR companies. So, you're an operator as well as a strategy thinker. And then you started your own firm, Peninsula Strategies, in uh, 2001 and since then have been focused specifically on subscription management, pricing, and, and membership uh, mindset. Can you talk a little bit about what it was that was the interest? it is for your wanting to branch off and start your own firm and what you saw playing out more broadly in the in the landscape?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So so two part two part answer. So what what had me um, branch out was I got laid off while I was on uh, maternity leave the the day I returned. And I think it's important to just share that because sometimes I know sometimes it looks like what an easy path and people kind of gloss over the rough parts. But, um, you know, my second child, uh, you know, I came back from maternity leave and uh, kind of got hit in the face with a round of layoffs. Oh my gosh. And decide, I know, I know. and it's it's totally legal. And you know, there were people who were pregnant and had just had children who were not laid off. and there were people who did not have children who were laid off, men and women, all you know, all the things. Um, but it was still painful. And I said, you know, for the next several years, I really need to be in control of my own my own income. And um, so at the beginning, it was really more of a stopgap measure. Uh, where I had control over my time, where instead of having to deal with a whole, you know, org chart of of, of colleagues and managers and influencers to ensure that my my career success, in in consulting you really only have to make your client happy, right. right? So there's there's an ability to focus. It's it's a much clearer kind of relationship. So I said I'll do that for a few years. I really liked it at the beginning. I was just doing whatever whatever I was qualified for. So you know at the intersection of marketing and strategy and product and financial services and hr and you know if i could make a case and you believed that i could do it <laughs> and i felt like i could do it i would yeah. you know i would do it sure um, and 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 after a little while um i, I really liked being an, uh, an independent consultant i i liked the rhythm and the and the kind of work i as you pointed out i'd come out of big firm strategy consulting and i like strategy and so i was like well if I keep doing this, I probably need an area of focus. Right. My first several clients were just the, the clients that I that I got. You know, I was like, I'll, I'll do the work if I can do the work. And um, I was thinking, what is it that I'm good at? What is it that I like? What is trending? And my fifth client uh, was Netflix. And I, this is, you know, 2002. So I fell in love with their business model. And um, at this point, just to give a little, you know, kind of sense of, of where they were on their journey, um, they had just reached a national footprint in the United States on the mainland, where they could turn around DVDs in three days. So they they were able to start doing national advertising, and they were starting to think about expanding more broadly. And I loved the discipline that they had about uh, retention, about understanding the value of a customer from the beginning. So based on where they acquired that customer and under what circumstances they could predict with a pretty high uh, level of accuracy how long that person was going to stay on average. Um, and, and that was fascinating to me. And I started to see how everything that they did at, at, at Netflix was a little bit different than how other companies did it. They were much more focused on retention. They were measuring engagement. They weren't that interested in getting the most new customers. I had come from a lot of companies that were all about, you know, how many new logos do you have this year? What's new to talk about? And and people that were responsible for retention in these companies that I'd been working with were usually quite junior and were not seen as strategic at all. And suddenly at Netflix, everything was flipped on its head. And it was all about keeping the customers you have, not taking customers who weren't going to be valuable in the long term, tremendous discipline around offers and pricing structure. And I started thinking about where else this could apply and who else what other kinds of companies could do well by thinking about retention and i went back to the b2b companies the what today we call saas that i'd been working for as product manager and product marketing and thought wow these same principles probably apply here and they probably also apply with newspapers who've been doing subscription for a long time and wow there are a lot of industries where this can apply and so as I was sort of focusing in on what I was calling premium services, what I was calling, you know, recurring revenue business models, I didn't have a name for it yet. But as I was doing that, you know, other people started to call and say, hey, we heard you worked with Netflix. You know, we want to do some of the same things as Netflix. You know, we want to be the Netflix of bicycles or we want right. to be the Netflix of news. Right. Or we sure. be- right. And, and, and this time, and I started saying, well, what does that really mean yeah. for me? What do I, when when I say that, what does it mean what is what is similar? What are lessons that can be applied across different industries? Um, and what's unique to an industry? So as an example, the second company that i that I worked with um, in this kind of you know subscription space as a consultant was Paycycle, which is now a part of uh, of Intuit, uh, payroll for very small businesses. And I came in guns blazing saying, you need a two-week free trial because that had right. worked so well at Netflix. Right. And I learned pretty quickly that that actually wasn't the best offer because when you're selling payment systems for your you know, employee payroll, uh, the biggest challenge is not the cost of the software. It's the cost of getting up and running and the risk of what happens if it doesn't work and you don't pay somebody on time. And so the the money that the two week free trial they didn't care about a free trial it was I don't know thirty nine or forty nine dollars a month yeah um, what they cared about was being confident that the onboarding process would be successful and so just starting to think about what's the same what's different um, in those early days was was really challenging and kind of a puzzle that I enjoyed trying to figure out, even as I was working with these different companies.
0: Got it. And so that's what was the impetus of the catalyst for you to write the book uh, Membership Economy, which I guess you started it in 2004 after you finished Netflix and you published it in 2015. And what a lot of people <laughs> may not realize is that you actually got your book out before Chen Zhao's subscribe book came out in 2018, which really, I, I get it. He's working at a big company. He's got a bunch of money to get the marketing out. But some of the ideas that you were working with even predated him, which I think is I mean, it's, it's a great book um, uh, for people in uh, across the interweb that's listening to this right now to, to if you want to go back and do the archaeological dig of how, who was doing the thinking around subscription uh, as a business model and membership. As a as a way to include your and increase your business, I got to tell you, Robbie Baxter's books is is one of the one of the ones to start with. And it sounded like that 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 was uh, you were really out in front. and You had people calling you asking you what were some of the takeaways beyond the ones we've chatted about uh, around this idea of the membership economy for businesses. So for all the people out there at B2B, we talked a little bit about retention and focusing on that area of customer success. Gainsight has really driven that forward. I was part of that world at Salesforce. It put a huge premium on that. I was there in 2012. But just that whole business model that undergirds the membership economy. Do you have a couple other thoughts or best practices you would want to to for our listeners?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the really important things is that if you want to to justify recurring revenue, you have to have a product that solves your problem on an ongoing basis. So, how you design the product um, becomes really important. It's not just about chain, It's not just about slapping subscription pricing on something and calling it, you know, as a service. Um, it, the, the product, the underlying product, has to be designed for, you know, easy uh, easy deployment, for expansion over time, for not just, you know, I always think about there's, a, there's an acquisition benefit. There's a reason that somebody buys your product, signs up, you know, uh, signs the contract, uh, gets started, does the small experiment. But then the onus is really on the subscription business owner um, to engage the users and expand the relationship over time. So, that you know it's a function of is it the right product for that is the product designed for onboarding and for expansion over time and it's also about the organization being structured in a way that they can tell like as i as i mentioned with netflix they can tell in the first 2 weeks your likelihood of becoming a good customer and i think the same thing is true uh in in many businesses you can tell right away you know are the things happening that indicate that onboarding is is successful that the right people are using it they're using the right set of features they're engaging their colleagues appropriately and i think that that the, the way those pieces fit together is really important in nascent you know we're in silicon valley right in in businesses that start saas or that start subscription some of these things might be more intuitive but a lot of large companies are are in the midst of painful transformations to this model and they often you know i think they often start with the tail wagging the dog which is we need subscription revenue to justify higher market valuations. So let's start charging differently and we'll fix everything else as we go. Instead of sort of saying, this is a very holistic um, transformation and we need to look at what this means, you know, not just for pricing, but for, you know, the product itself, for the aftermarket, you know, kind of a post-sales experience, the way, you know, our, our people answer the phone the way we talk about the product, the way we acquire customers, right? There's going to be some customers where it's like it's easy to acquire them, but they're never going to expand over time, and so it's not worth it to to bring them on. They don't they don't align with your with your model, and they're not going to let you scale.
0: So a, a couple of things there. Uh, one, just that last point, I think it's really interesting. That you see a lot of people right now within the subscription business model writ large. There's this uh, almost tribal battle between sales-led growth and product-led growth. And the Mm -hmm. answer is not either or, it's actually and, I think. And a lot of companies are going to have to embrace both. But if you've been primarily a sales-led growth model where you have marketing and sales, engaging with customers directly, you're doing negotiated agreements, you're getting an invoice out, it's usually an annual type of contract with a renewal type motion. If that's what you're core uh, go-to-market model is. And you say, okay, now we're gonna tack on PLG. It's a radically different way of thinking about the world. I mean, even the last couple of sasters I've been to, it's all been about PLG and usage-based model. And what does that mean? And your product is actually gonna get people to sign up. But it's not just about saying you're PLG. You have to think about, well, how do you go to market? How do you create a a self-serve premium type of experience? How do you take the post-sales experience to drive conversions to a paid model and, and then execute the renewal motion? So I think to your point, it's really a business bet as you're moving either from on-prem legacy to subscription or within subscription to uh, break out different go-to-market models. I think that was one of the points you're making. And so the whole company has to be aligned around that. The other one that I think you were sort of pointing to, which I I fundamentally believe as well, is even in SaaS companies today, you do see this gap between sales and customer lifecycle management. And so getting a customer sold and then getting them up and running. So the implementation and the adoption and the renewal and the expansion, everyone talks about, oh, it's one big cycle and we we treat everybody uh, well, but it, I mean, you're shaking your head no. What, what's your experience been and what's your <laughs> sort of suggestion for SaaS companies to think about there?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's still, I think, a, a little too much of the kind of throwing it over the wall, you know, uh, overselling or, or selling to someone who doesn't, I mean, you need a lot of discipline, I think, in a SaaS model you need to know this is this kind of customer this is how the relationship's going to expand over time and i think together to kind of start to set expectations about where is this relationship going to go um after the moment of the sale that's the the moment of transaction's the starting line not the finish line and you know something else that i know you think a lot about and you've you've alluded to a couple of times is this this question of you know the current subscription model is that the the end game or are there other models or are there other ways of thinking about this and and for me it's about customer outcomes. And, you know, the customer comes to you and they don't say, I want to buy some software or even I want to subscribe to some software. What they're saying is, I want my employees to make smarter decisions, for example. And so that, you know, assumes that the, the, the employees are, you know, using the product, uh, using it regularly, using it well. And I think a lot of companies would, would rather be built on that because it aligns better with the outcome, right? rather than paying for a seat, which is an entitlement, paying for usage, um, metered payment. There's there's a lot of different ways that I think organizations can go as they move toward aligning their pricing with outcomes.
0: Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. I mean, part of the reason I joined Maxio was because it was really focused on the space of usage-based pricing and, to your point, aligning the value prop. So a couple takeaways, and then we'll shift to your next book, The Forever Transaction. But one, I, what I heard from you was understand the value of a customer at time of transaction. And it's going to take a little while to do that. You're not going to know that when you're just getting started. So then what can you do? You can can give a freemium um, offering, but then you have to understand the early signals of potential customer value that you can monetize over time, what's working, what's not. I think the other thing we had chatted about in our pre-brief was when you're early, you often end up taking lots of different customers because they're going to pay you. And the challenge is getting super crisp on the ICP where you have real value and the customer is gonna grow with you over time. So if you're moving from a B2C to a B2B model, right? You're gonna be a bunch of customers, you're gonna disappoint, but being okay with that and segmenting it. I remember when I was CEO of a company called Percolate, we were a social media platform that was trying to make a strategic transition into customer content marketing, a CMP. So the entire business had been built for one use case that we were trying to extend and expand so we would be you a know, broader TAM. And what was interesting was we actually had to segment out the customer base and with the board, talk about the two different customers. These are the customers, these new customers, this small business is where we want to go. Don't get distracted by looking over here because we're not optimizing for it. We're not investing resources in terms of technology or additional service. We want to keep them as long as we can, but if they're not going to move with us into this new world, we're going to let them go. And that was probably one of the hardest conversations I've had is you see this business, you know, deliberately you're cannibalizing it to fund what is going to be the future business. And so I think for uh, companies, especially as they're getting out of the gate, is understanding what your core value prop is, where it's going to resonate, and then continually evaluating what's working, what's not in that construct
1: yeah, I, I totally agree with you. and and it is it is painful. Um, and it does require education of your your board, your investors. You know you you have to set expectations and say, you know hey, we're we're going to actually turn down some short-term revenue so that we can build build the machine and that you know so that you know so that we can scale. Have going after too many different types of customers and too many different kinds of use cases can be can be really distracting. Um, and the other thing is, if you, you know, subscribe to quarterly capitalism, where you're compensating everybody on the number that they hit, you know, at the end of March or the end of, you know, whatever, whatever quarter it is, you know, and, and they may not even be around the next year. Right. You're 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 teaching people the, the wrong habits. Right. The, the habit we want is for people to come and stay and expand.
0: Well, that might be a perfect segue to your next book, The Forever Transaction. So if the membership economy was your manifesto, identifying these broader themes in the marketplace and applying the lessons learned in a B2C Netflix world to the B2B world, and you had several uh, companies you worked on the front line with to manage that. You then translated that into this forever transaction, which was really the playbook. Can you talk a little bit about how that came together and, and what are the couple of points you would uh, highlight for people that are, again, B2B SaaS or thinking about this idea of the forever transaction, making sure you're lined up in terms of your product and your incentives to create success?
1: Yeah, so, so when I wrote, I wrote The Membership Economy, um, as, as you said, I started making notes for it in 2004. It didn't come out until 2015. So I spent a lot of time. I was really nervous that nobody was going to see what I was seeing. Um, I, I was I was having a lot of conversations with people, just trying to help them connect the dots that, you know, what newspapers do really well is what software companies should be thinking about. Or, you know, let's try to kind of connect the dots and, you know, membership, like, you know, it is important that your users and your customers are engaging with each other and building stickiness and and, and all of that. So membership economy was like, here's my one pound business card. If you like it, let's talk. If you don't like it, you probably aren't going to like me that much. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, let's just, let's just save ourselves, you know, all some, yeah, right. some, some heartache. Um, but, but, you know, that was 2015. And, you know, people started, you know, getting on the bandwagon and being interested in subscriptions and what i started hearing then was a lot of people coming to me saying look hey we're talking and talking and talking about subscription we're afraid to actually make the commitment to you know to move to a saas model or you know we have been subscription forever but it doesn't seem to be working the same way and it seems like these other companies like salesforce are kind of eating our lunch and we're not sure what they're doing differently or you know, why their subscription or their SaaS model seems to work so much better than ours. And so I wrote the forever transaction as a how-to. And I broke it into three parts. So the first part is for a company that is just getting started dipping their toe into these models, whether they're in a large company and they have like a little team off in the corner that's trying to figure this out before the company, you know, sort of bets the farm on, on on this model. Or if you're just starting de novo, you have no business, you know, startup company, we're going to start with subscription. And that's about, you know, what is your forever promise? What is it that you're going to do for your customers on an ongoing basis? How are you going to improve their condition? How are you going to solve ongoing problems? Who's your ideal member? And what is the, the offering that you're going to build that is both attractive enough to, to get them to join or sign up and engaging enough to expand uh, over time. Um, the next section of the book is about scaling. So you've figured it out. You've put together a model, you know, I always say with like chewing gum and paper clips, and now you're ready for the concrete and the rebar. Like how do you build a system for scale? How do you build an organization for scale? How do you set up the right KPIs for scaling a subscription-based business? And that's a lot about culture too. You know, what kind of people do you need? What kind of mindset do you need? And then the last part of the book is about staying relevant. I think one of the risks of a lot of um, businesses that are recurring revenue is that when you do it well, customers relax into the relationship. This is just how they solve their problems, how they get things done. Periodically, you come out with an update. You know, they barely even notice that. It's very, you know, it's very easy to just be lulled into this relationship. They stop looking for alternatives. And I think a lot of companies confuse loyalty with inertia. So just because your customers aren't leaving you does not mean that they love your product or that if they were out shopping today, they would pick your product again. There may be fantastic new competitors in the market, but because your customers aren't shopping, they don't know to be disappointed in what you have or haven't been doing. So in that late stage, what companies will say is our customers that know us love us, but nobody seems to want to join anymore. No, we, we're having trouble getting new customers, and so you know, I I wrote the book explaining, kind of breaking down each of those three phases, and you know, what are the problems you're likely to see, and um, and how do you how do you attack each of those each of those problems? And what I what I notice is people are like, oh, you're seeing around the corners. That's exactly how did you know we have that issue? And it's like, well, they all go together. They all go together.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of the interesting thing about the SaaS business model in general is there's, uh, well, obviously for Maxio, we help people understand their SaaS operating metrics and we're able to pattern match across the 2300 customers. And I think all VCs and PE firms are doing the same. So they say, look, if you're a vertical B2B SaaS company, this is what your net retention should be. This is um, how much you spent on sales and marketing. So I do think there's pattern matching going on and everybody has the playbook now you know, many years after you started to uh, identify it uh, with your first book and then write out the, the how-to book. And so I think it's a wonderful book for people that, uh, again, are either getting started or trying to scale, especially for our early customer base. We talked about a couple of examples that I'd love for you to share with the, with the broader audience. One was Strava. I'm a huge fan of Strava. I've been an early adopter of it. And I think when you talk about your, um, I think it was the, in your first part of the book and how do you create that, forever promise. Can you talk a little bit about Strava and what they got right and what you think some of that, again, it's primarily B2C, but I do think there's some directly applicable lessons learned for B2B companies with that model.
1: Yeah, so um, I've been talking with the the Strava founders since since the beginning. So since it was an idea on on a, on a piece of paper, and you know they're both they're both uh, athletes, and they wanted to create a community for athletes, in a way for tracking and competing and uh, encouraging one another, very much around community. And so, you know, to build community, right? There's there's sort of a chicken and egg problem. You know, you want to build the community. Um, before you have anything really to, to charge for. So, you know, they were very ad supported early on or sponsor, they, you know, they called it sponsor supported and really focused on just getting all the athletes using, you know, using the platform, being able to in, in, engage with one another. And they had a subscription. This is I found this really interesting. They had a subscription, I think it was like five dollars from, from was, pretty early on. $4.99. Yeah. <laughs> and and, you know, it, it didn't have a lot of great benefits, right? Um, most the, the interesting thing, and I, I had this experience a long time ago with Zoomerang, which was an early competitor of SurveyMonkey. And, you know, SurveyMonkey, a client of mine, ultimately swallowed up Zoomerang. One of their biggest problems is the free product was good enough for most people, right? Same thing with Strava, right? The free product is actually great for most people. And so they actually did some research and said, well, who are these people then that are paying? What is the value they're getting? And what most people said is, I love you guys so much, that I want you to be around and I want I want to support whatever you're doing. And if that subscription ever becomes valuable and has more features, I'd love to be the first to get it, but I'm just happy to pay $5 a month. And that was really eye-opening. The kind of, of loyalty they'd built, the kind of um, habits that they'd established with people really gave them permission to, to do other things. And when they did really focus on what they called you know, their season of subscriptions, where they... They beefed up the subscription offering. They moved, you know, one or a couple of uh, popular features behind the paywall. Very controversial, and added um, added some other other uh, features and benefits. You know, they were really focused on who's going to get value, who's not. How do we move the right people there? How do we make sure that they use those features and appreciate them? And how do we communicate that we're taking? I and mean, this is a hard thing for a lot of businesses when you take something that used to be free and you move it behind the paywall. How do we explain? Why we're why we're doing that? Price increases and and uh, you know moving uh, moving love, beloved features. Uh, th- those are things that are particularly hard to do when you're 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 you've got a subscription type of relationship with your customer.
0: I think you're right. I think I think of Jeffrey Morris crossing the chasm, and you have these early adopters who just want to use something because it's cool and new. And then how do you cross the chasm to get to the early majority? But in doing so, how do you not forget? The people that brought you there and so as a early yeah. strava adopter of the free product i 100 hear you in terms of when they initially were charging five bucks my friends and i were all like okay five bucks a month that's fine uh you know support them but then there was this existential crisis about wait they're charging more and more features are going behind the paywall but i think i think in this and what's different today is we live in a subscription economy is b2c you're just used to paying subscriptions and so Rather than buying the prepackaged product from Best Buy, you're buying subscriptions. I can't even tell you in my own family how many different subscriptions we have. In the B2B world, I think similarly, it's um, on average, I heard uh, companies that are $20 million have 100 something SaaS subscriptions. And so everyone, it's super easy to put it on your credit card and have it be part of your OpEx, not your CapEx. Uh, functional leaders are able to sign up for these things. And I do think it's the onus is on the company to be able to continue to uh, develop and deliver and educate on the value that they're creating for their customer base, which is really goes to your, your third part of the book. I probably won't have time to get in the second part, but the third part I thought it was great. You talk about the graying of the customer base and the yeah. idea of the product has to be competitive today, and many software companies lose focus on being current. And one of the examples you gave was the gym example. Um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that, or you have another one about customers that take for granted their customer base and aren't staying current. And what do you, what can you do specifically to make sure that you're current? Make sure that you're integrating the voice of the customer, or make sure you're getting the feedback loop so that you're staying current for today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the the issue is you know, if you just listen to your customers, right, they've become members. They've taken off their consumer hat, stopped looking for alternatives, put on their member hat. They're they're going to say, we love you. They're not that, you know, they, they, they might have a random feature that they really want and give you a hard time about that. But for the most part, they're they're not really the only people you need to listen to. If you want to keep acquiring customers, first of all, you need to be balancing your acquisition metrics with those retention metrics. Right. So you want to make sure, and, and so- you know, from a, a voice of the customer perspective, it should be an orchestra and not just the violins. And what I mean by that is that you're not just listening to existing customers, you're listening to lapsed customers, customers who used to be your customers and no longer are. You're listening to prospects who are considering you and have other alternatives and are really focused on what's going on right now in the market. And you're listening for um, lost lost prospects. So, you you know, win-loss record, the ones that you lost you should still be asking them what they think, what they're thinking about, what they value. And that's really the voice of the customer. It's it's the customer you want. It's, it's the customer you want, not just the customers you have.
0: Right, it's it's almost backing out to the idea of your ideal customer profile, the, the Venn diagram overlap of people that have, who don't know you, people who know you that bought you, people who are current customers, those who bought you and left you. And I would even maybe offer um, mm-hmm. plugging in with analysts so yeah. reading the analyst reports to see what they're seeing uh, play out, going to conferences, seeing um, how these themes are playing out, what's hot, what's not, going around and kicking the tires on other uh, other companies' products. I think early stage startups can be so convinced that they have the right way and that no one else is doing it, that they lose track of how the market has evolved. So it's not just about what you're doing, but it's how the market is evolving and your ability to respond to that.
1: Yeah, Absolutely.
0: We're, we're almost out of time, uh, Robbie, but I do want to make sure that people have an opportunity to find you. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Obviously, they can find you on LinkedIn. Are there other places? I know you have a website and you, where they can find both your books. Are there other ways that you would recommend them getting in touch with you?
1: Yeah, those are the best two ways. So RobbieKelmanBaxter.com, my name. And uh, and you can find me on, on LinkedIn. Um, I post every day uh, about the, the wonderful world of... Uh, of recurring revenue. So uh, those are probably the best. Places.
0: In close, what's your most recent posts that you had that you uh, think everyone should know about? Other oh, recurring gosh. revenue.
1: Well, so, so uh, apropos of your, your comment about your family, um, the, the, I recently posted about subscription fatigue and ah. um, this idea that not only are we all comfortable with, uh, buying subscriptions. But we're pretty sophisticated and we're we're pretty tired of it. We're, we're more discerning. Um, and this, I think, is true both as consumers, right? We're all consumers. We all subscribe to streaming and newspapers and personal productivity apps and all the other stuff. But also um, as, as businesses, um, I mean, you know, trying to manage, it's very easy for anybody in the organization to subscribe um, just using their credit card and, and expensing it back. Um, but somebody has to be paying attention to all of those and making sure they all work together. That people are using them, uh, that they're getting the value that they were promised, and uh, and and that becomes that becomes really complicated. So, so figuring out how do you sell and how do you keep people engaged in a world of subscription fatigue.
0: I you, you have so many interesting things that we'll spend two more minutes on it. One, well, so I used to be in go to market tech and we would go see Chief Marketer would publish how many vendors there were in the MarTech world, and now it's north of 10,000. So 10,000 vendors are trying to get marketer CMOs or people on their team to use their technology super hard. It's one of the reasons I came to Maxio because we were selling the CFO, and the CFO and the function of finance hadn't yet been fully penetrated by SaaS tech. But having said that, uh, I think over the last uh, year, year and a half in particular, what you're finding is a lot more attention to how much is being spent on internal software mm-hmm. so one of the data points i've heard people say is you should have about two percent of your revenue going to internal uh use software if it's lower than that something's wrong you need to go on a software diet so to your point subscription fatigue is li- li- has has um really driven i think subscription dieting and that's both killing products and asking yeah. for discounts i think with the tech recession that we've seen in the last 18 months i don't know a vendor mm-hmm. who isn't uh, battling at every renewal to demonstrate the value they offer and why they should, why their customers should pay this price. And yeah. in fact, there's uh, there, uh, what you're seeing more broadly is some of the big guys are forcing price increases because their overall revenue is not going up. So you're in this really, <laughs> you know, difficult situation where people like software, to, uh, excuse me, like Salesforce have come out and said, hey, it's going to be nine percent across the board increase, and people are like, I gotta have Salesforce, but my budget's not getting bigger. So what do I cut? What do I yeah. cut? And if you're not yeah. the must have for the CMO, the CRO, the CFO, you're going to be on the chopping block. And so it's a really hard environment in uh, the subscription fatigue, subscription diet, in this constraints that we're all feeling uh, at this time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You want to be the um, the avocado in the uh, in the subscription diet with a good with a good uh, branding campaign and uh making the case for those healthy fats, right? That's right, (laughs) absolutely. Right
0: on, Robbie. With that, thank you again for your time. Really appreciate it. Best of luck. And I look forward to your next book.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's great talking to you, Randy.